This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to Monday's edition of the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I'm Guy Clark and alongside me, three fine colleagues joining us, of course, over the uh, wonders of modern technology through the internet. Theo Squires alongside us. Theo, how are you keeping, mate? Not too bad. Obviously, got a bit of a beard on the go at the moment. See how that goes. It's some entertainment during lockdown. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i normally the one who's given a battering for looking maybe far older than I actually am. <laughs> but those who are watching on YouTube can see Theo has grown a, uh, a nice beard. Uh, Theo, we, we look forward to tracking the progress of that. Ian Doyle, he's got the uh, the world's greatest behind him, Pele. Yeah. Hopefully you're yeah. going to turn in an equally impressive performance on this pod. Well, he's 70-odd, so that's probably about right. <laughs> And our Liverpool correspondent, Paul Gorst. Gorsty, how are you, mate? Yeah, I'm all right. I can't, uh, can't grow a beard like Theo's. I just end up looking like Gary Neville, so I've decided to swear that <laughs> I'm just waiting for the addition of uh, just seeing you all of a sudden turning up as a uh, skinhead with having shaved all your hair off. But we'll have to wait and see when that does quite come. Well, we've plenty on the agenda today here on the podcast to get through. Of course, Liverpool's decision to furlough some of their staff that hasn't particularly gone down well, of course, over the weekend. We'll get into the latest from FIFA and UEFA as Liverpool handed somewhat of a boost in their hopes to land the Premier League title. And then into the second half of the pod, we'll look at some of Liverpool's greatest and perhaps not so great young players to have come through after Harvey Elliott celebrated his 17th birthday at the weekend and a little bit on Virgil van Dijk to finish us off. Doily, I'll come to you straight away though and we'll get into this furloughing decision. Of course, plenty of companies up and down the land taking similar stances but Premier League football clubs not being taken uh, obviously too lightly in terms of them taking the uh, decisions and people obviously not too receptive towards that. No, we're not. I mean, there are basically two parties involved here. I think the first party is the people working at the club for them, this is a great decision in the sense that they're getting paid 100% of their wage and they're not going to miss out despite the fact that they're not going to be working. I think we're, we believe it's about 200 members of staff at Liverpool City, most of the non-playing staff. But of course, that's great for them. But from a business point of view, you'd have to say what Liverpool, the club, have done. And under the instruction, you presume, from Fenway Sports Group is is quite reasonable. The, you know, the government are offering this initiative to help businesses pay for people who aren't going to be doing work and that's fair enough you know not not everybody will be paying the extra not all companies will be paying the extra 20 percent will they to to top up the the wages of their employees who, who are being furloughed but of course football clubs are not normal businesses you know as much as you know you might like mcdonald's or burger king you're not going to be cheering them on from the touchlines are you every weekend although i know do do, do know some people who probably would do um but you look at it's the, it's the image that it puts out, the message it puts out. I mean, the, just, the strange thing for me is that Tottenham did it a few days earlier and got absolutely battered. And then, okay, Norwich, I think, it, it, the other two, Bournemouth and Newcastle. Newcastle, United, Newcastle yeah. that's it, yeah, I've done it as well. And it says a lot that when Newcastle do it, everyone just goes, well, it's Mike Ashley, what do you expect? You know, so, but Liverpool to do it, it's, as I say, from a business point of view, you can see where they're coming from and there'll be much bigger businesses that just won't do this. You know, I, I don't need to name the names of, of, of certain large businesses that are already doing it. They get a bigger profit, but, you know, there's emotional attachment to Liverpool and it's the fact that they're seen as doing, you know, not just them, but every club does as a link with the community with and, and represents the fans. And Liverpool make a big deal of this, you know, this means more and that kind of message. And, you know, does it mean... 
20% more or should it mean 100% more? Uh, it's it's a difficult one to say. I mean, you only have to see what the reception's been from outside of Liverpool and inside inside the city, to be fair, that people aren't happy with it. The, the, it's a massive public, public relations own goal when you consider all the great steps that they've taken over over recent years. The thing is, is that, you know, Liverpool, the club, sorry, will we'll look, as I said, they'll look and go, well, we're looking after our staff first and foremost, and we've done what's best for them. So in that sense, if, if, if you work for Liverpool, you know, they've stayed loyal to you. But even then, there are people who work for the club who, who you know, we've heard one or two whispers, you know, certain members of staff who, who, who they're uneasy with the way this has gone because they look at Liverpool, they've recorded, what was it, six weeks ago? Record revenues, you know, massive, you know, what was it, 40-odd million pound profit. And the actual amount that they're possibly going to, you know, lay out for, for this is, could be up to about two and a half million, maybe three, four million at the, the most. You know, what's that over three months for a football club like Liverpool? You know, it, it's not even what what player could they buy for that amount? You know, so I think it's personally speaking, I think it's I can see why they've done it, but no matter how they justify business sense, I don't think they can justify it from a moral point of view and also from just from the PR. Um, I think it's a mistake, and I wrote I wrote the piece immediately afterwards saying, you know, FSG have said. In the past, remember the ticket thing and the the, the backtracked on that. And there was the whole you know charade about the um, the trademark and the, the word Liverpool or the name Liverpool, I should say. They've kind of back, they step back from those two. They've still got an opportunity to backtrack from this step back, and I would hope they will do. Yeah, well, Gorsty, like Dolly yourself, over the course of the. Uh... The weekend wrote a piece on it. We, of course, did the agenda podcast that is on the the Blood Red channels for those who haven't caught up with it. And we we spent so much time on Friday, actually, with with Matt Addison talking about how well, in terms of PR, the Premier League had done in putting out the statement that they had. And then Liverpool, as Doyle's just said, scoring somewhat of a PR own goal. Oh, massively. Um, I mean, as Doyle says, I mean, we should acknowledge that employees are still being paid 100%, and that's a huge... I know for the fact that that is a huge relief to to so many of their non-playing staff, but it it doesn't quite sit right that that this is a club who so so readily tap into the the values of Bill Shankly, and and we hear so much about about some of the things he said during his career at Liverpool and how Liverpool kind of still to this day use him as as the sounding board almost, if you like, you know, with, with the the socialist values of the club and the community and everyone connected around Mezad and, and, and all of the, the the majority of their fan base. So to then tap into, you know, government funds um, to essentially pay their staff, it just doesn't doesn't really sit right. I mean, it's it's a bit exploitative, isn't it? Are they, are they doing anything um, technically wrong? No. Um, morally, that's a little bit more of a grey area, isn't it? And I think the, the outpouring of Disappointment and, and anger from from supporters since it was announced has been, um, you know, I, I think it is justified to be honest. Um, FSG and the club as a whole have done so much over the course of this coronavirus pandemic to earn plenty of praise. They've done so much for for the community across, you know, Anfield and the Mayside community as a whole with the food banks, um, the players donating money to, to food banks and to certain schemes that they've set up to help the elderly and the vulnerable in society. And all that we have reported about um, deserves credit, but this one is a is a backward step, and and do you need to take the medicine on this one? I think. Obviously, of course, it's him from the the players Theo Jordan Henderson trying to get in touch with all the the captains of the other Premier League clubs to set up this fund for money for the NHS. It's Doyle referred to 
nice mug there, Doily. Do like the uh, the cornflake mug there. Thank but you, thank but, you. <laughs> but uh, uh, Theo, in terms of, I suppose going back to to what Gorsty said as well on on FSG, perhaps that they don't just quite understand the relationship Liverpool as a city has with the the football club and the importance and significance of that. I think you're always going to get that with these foreign owners. Like, granted, they've been in charge of Liverpool for a number of years now, but they're still running the club from the other side of the Atlantic. And it's very telling that the people that do get the club that have been part of the history have all come out and said the same message here because it's not just the fans that are unhappy, it's the former players as well. I think you can just list them off on top of your head. You can say Danny Murphy's had to go, Didier Mann's had to go, Jamie Carragher's had to go, and they're not going to be the only ones here. Liverpool has always had this certain way, this certain belief and it's their identity. The players buy onto it. The managers buys into it. And that's part of the reason why Jurgen Klopp has been so successful. Um, FSG, they've had their, I suppose, people have been critical of them in the past. And it's only when the success has come and they've landed and signed all these great players that that's subsided somewhat. Criticise them for other things. Fair enough. Sometimes it's not been justified. But this is something that you can criticise them on. Uh, you've got to just look at it, though. They are businessmen. They're not football fans. They're not running Liverpool as this local Scouse family that have brought them back from the brink. They saw it as an opportunity and they're wanting to go into it and make as much money as possible and then sell Liverpool for as much as possible at some point down the line. So when you look at it like that, you can completely understand why they've made this decision. But then with everything that you say about Liverpool, the fans, manager, player and all that, it just doesn't sit right. I mean, there's a reason why FSG are billionaires. John Henry's a billionaire and it's exactly for this kind of decision. I mean, just picking up on something that, uh, that Theo said, can you imagine what Jurgen Klopp and Jordan Edison are thinking when they see that? I mean, obviously not just those two, because there's a, a, a lot more other players involved, but they're the two, you know, they, you know as Gorsty said, Klopp said all the right things, Henderson said all the right things, they've done all the right things, and then this happens, so that they must be thinking, well, hang on. No, definitely, and that leads me on to a point, actually, that I wanted to, to ask you guys all about, and it is involving Jurgen Klopp, because he so often speaks out about the community and the importance of the football club and things like that. And I'm not saying by any means this will happen because of this situation, but should he take this badly, surely Liverpool FC as a football club are in a position where they need Jurgen Klopp more than Jurgen Klopp needs Liverpool, if that makes sense, in terms of if this decision really didn't sit right with him, surely he, he, when this decision is taken as the manager of a football club, should be consulted, should he not? Maybe so, yeah. I mean, it's essentially, it's it's 200 of the non-playing staff. Obviously, Klopp doesn't know that 99% of them, does he? They're just people who, who work in the club shops, the museums and, and the restaurants and, and wherever else it may be. So, um, Klopp won't know any of those personally affected by it. And, let, and let's face it, he hasn't, haven't been adversely affected by this decision. They're, they're still being paid 100%. It's more just how it looks at a time when government funds should be perhaps better utilised elsewhere. You know, this was set up as a job retention scheme to ensure that you know bar staff and, and you know businesses that can't run during this coronavirus pandemic to essentially retain their staff so that when it do, when life resumes back to normal, that they can go on living their life as normal. Liverpool. Um, haven't really been or shouldn't be too impacted by this, that they're still wealthy enough to pay all their non-playing staff 100% without using using this government scheme. And I just think, uh, myself personally, I don't know, um, it does seem to be the majority of thinking from what I've seen that there are better ways to use this government money. 
on the point on Jurgen Klopp, though, Doyle, is it not a case of if he sits there in a press conference talking all the time about the importance of the togetherness of the, the club and the supporters, who at the end of the day, Liverpool FC sort of means so much too, that actually it is a conflict of messaging. As Gorsley did say, though, obviously Liverpool straight from the off paid all of the match day staff for the remaining, I think it was four Premier League games. So they have done their bit, but then they go and make a decision like this. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you can imagine when we finally do get to, to have a press conference again, if this situation doesn't change, imagine one of the first questions Klopp will get asked is, oh, what do you think of this? And it's like, well, it's not on him, is it? He, he's an employee of the of the owners of the club. So I think it was Piers Morgan said something like, why was, you know, was, was Jurgen Klopp consulted on this? It was like, well, why would he be? You know, this is a, a business decision made by businessmen. It's interesting that I think it was Melissa Reddy wrote something today about it seems as though there's a split inside the club of whether it was a good decision or not. That's what she was hinting at. I mean, we I've not heard anything on that in that regard. But as as Theo said, it's a decision that's predominantly made by people who are thousands of miles away. And you will get this from now and again. We mentioned the ticket thing before from 2016, where the they put the t- now they're putting the ticket prices up, and you know, ten thousand people walked out, and they changed their mind straight away on that one. They stri- changed their mind there because they thought, well, we might lose money here in the long run, and it ultimately just does come down to money. So they'll have to probably work out what's the hit going to be on our image here, because nobody knows when this, you know, the pandemic, when this this lockdown is going to end. And we're all working on the basis it could be three months, it could be longer. We don't know when football's going to restart. So whether or Liverpool are protecting themselves from that in the long run, but I mean, the reality is, you know, they make they make such sums of money, and people see they make that sums of money that they'll think, well, hang on, why why do they have to go to the government? As Ghost, he said, it's not been set up for these kind of companies. It's the ones who cannot pay or would struggle to pay because they're completely out of business. And Liverpool, while there's no games, they will still be making a bit of money from merchandise. The online shops will still be open, you know. And, and the other thing, another point that has to be made is. I know that a few people were unhappy with the timing of it because it came out just as the the PFA and the players and the club, sorry, were having conversations about a uniform pay cut, which hasn't been resolved. So it it looks like Liverpool are already going to the government before the players have even decided exactly how they're going to cut the wage. I mean, the players do want to. They all want to do something. And I know we've spoken about this previously. So the timing of it wasn't too clever either. No, Theo, and, and that issue about players' wages when you're having, uh, obviously, non-playing staff being put on, on furlough leave and the players' salaries haven't yet been cut, that is a, a, a decision we are still waiting to hear about. It's something, obviously, that with the PFA and with Gordon Taylor is very much sort of in the eye today and it's something that I'm, I'm sure will continue to rumble on. Yeah, it's one of those where it's probably why there is so much fume, that the fact that clubs want to save this money by taking away some of the wage from the lowest earners, putting them on 80%, granted Liverpool have topped up. When you've got some employees that are going to be on, what, £200,000 a week, it's ridiculous. It just doesn't add up this way. But at the same time, the players, I think their issue wasn't taking the pay cut. It was that that money, where does it go? Because it shouldn't be going back to the owners. It should be going to the NHS or some charity fund like that. But then how can you police Liverpool the same way that you police some of the lower earning clubs in the Premier League, right down to League One, League Two? They can't afford to do that. Um, the managers, I think they're being held differently. Theirs isn't quite the same way. So there's a report today that's saying Jurgen Klopp is one of the ones who's willing to take a pay cut. I think David Moyes is as well. So they are moving the same ways. It just seems Liverpool have been almost acting before they needed to to make this decision. 
but it's why have they needed to go and say, uh, yes, we're going to do this now before things are resolved. It's one of those where if you're going to say, well, this is going to be the case for the next three months and see why they just want to get it out of the way and then they can make other decisions. Yeah, the, the pay-as-play thing, Doyle, is a real sort of minefield because if you take 20% off Mohamed Salah and you also take 20% off Curtis Jones, Curtis Jones may well argue that that 20% actually means far more to him than, say, Mohamed Salah, but then with with Liverpool, with a, a cosmopolitan and multi-international squad like Liverpool, you may have players, and a number of the Liverpool players do donate to charities back in their homelands, who all of a sudden now might not be able to help with the efforts in their home countries that they would want to. Well, that's why it's taken so long for them to decide what's going on. And the other thing as well, as, as, as I think it was Theo just then pointed or hinted towards, is that if they take the 30% off, that means there's 30% less tax getting paid to the government, where the players want to know is where the 30 they're, they're happy to take the 30% as far as, as I'm aware, but they want to know where it's going. They would rather it be something on the lines of that 30% goes directly to the NHS rather than as basically giving it back to the club and then they decide what to do with it because they'd rather not do that. Not that I'm saying they don't trust the clubs, but I think in the terms of Liverpool's decision, not just Liverpool, but Tottenham as well and all the others, You've got to bear in mind that three weeks ago, this was this is like decisions that nobody could dream of having to make. It's so difficult that people are going to get things wrong in all in all businesses. You know, wherever you work for, there's going to be missteps. It's just that with Liverpool being such a, they're obviously not a public owned property, but property, but in terms of their image, they are that they're just making all these mistakes and everybody's jumping on it. And we don't really need, you know, if you've seen some of the, uh, you know, the, the government ministers jumping on the fact that, you know using footballers to deflect from perhaps their own failings. And the last thing we needed is just Liverpool to get involved and become a, you know, something that people are getting judged by. It's such a conundrum with these player wages, though, because if you think back to, say, the 50s and 60s when the wages were split to in-season and out-season, so you just summer wage and your winter wage, but then player power came in and it's gone from you get most of your money for your bonuses, for winning games, getting clean sheets, scoring goals like Liverpool did in the 70s or 80s. Now they're getting so much up front. Granted, Liverpool have tried to change that with the younger players. I know Jurgen Klopp, he's been very firm with, he doesn't want to give too much too soon for the likes of Curtis Jones, Harvey Elliott coming through. But with the rest of the players, when there's so much power there, they've got agents who know exactly what they're doing to get as much money from it. You can't police them the same way. Like, how much of Mohamed Salah's wage is up front? Does he get without even kicking a ball each week compared to the youngsters who's going to get an ex big bonus just making five appearances in the season? There's such a contrast there when there's so much money at these top clubs. It's going to be impossible for him to make a decision that's fair for all of them. Well, unless they just do it from the base value, the base wage, we do it from there, then it's the same for everybody. There is an easier way around, an easier way around it. It's, it's more, I think the players are just concerned as to where the money's actually going to go. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. We best leave the, the finances there, though. That the ugly side of things over the weekend for Liverpool. But today, Gorsty, something of, I suppose, a, a good bit of news, or you can read into it looking like a, a good piece of news anyway, that FIFA, regarding the, the summer transfer window, have been changing a few of the, the dates about and things and making sure that actually this 2019-2020 campaign can get completed. So Liverpool, therefore, again, we get another update, should be able to get their hands on that Premier League title. Yeah, there just seems to be a, a collective determination across all the European leagues to basically just get it done and um, just complete the, the 38 games. So, I mean, that, that is obviously great news from a Liverpool perspective, given they only need the, the six points to 
to wrap up the league and, and become champions for the first time in 30 years. So um, anything along those lines is is good news for Liverpool. And I think I think now people need to stop just looking for the sandbites, you know, cancel the league, null and void the league, because that, that isn't going to happen. Um, all the governing bodies are, are committed to finishing it off as and when it, it's going to be finished. So it's time to end the debate, essentially. And, you know, it, because, because I don't know about you, but I know for, for myself, it's been a tiresome one to read across virtually every day. Um, certain fans of clubs want the season to be voided. Certain players have come out and said it. Um, it all just needs to be put to bed. And, and let's just face the fact that there are ongoing efforts to, to complete the seasons across Europe as and when it's safe to do so. Yeah, we saw, obviously, at the back end of last week, Belgium did say that their league's going to be done and dusted, that being the, the way in which the league operates as well, splitting into various factions and things. But Doily, UEFA have also sort of come out with quite a, a, a fresh update in terms of the fact that their president, once again, speaking that Liverpool, no matter how, whether it's completed or not, should be awarded the title. Yeah, he was speaking in his homeland, wasn't he, in, in Slovenia. Um, I think... What we could take from those quotes is that UEFA, as they kind of hinted at last week, the determination is if it's not to finish the season and play the game, just to finish the season full stop and then dis- decide who's won what and who's going where. I think that's what they want because they then want to, whenever next season starts, whether it's September, October, whenever, is to then have, they want to know who's going to be in European competition so they can plan accordingly. I mean, they've given all the domestic leagues enough chance by yeah, they scrapped the Euros, then they scrapped internationals in June, then they put back indefinitely the you know the European competitions so that the focus is on, you know, Syria has got loads of games left, hasn't it? So, you know, admittedly they don't quite have the same you know, reliance on competitions. So each, it's not just England, not the Premier League. I know we're obviously far more concerned with Liverpool and the Premier League than anything else, but in Spain it's the same situation, in France, in Germany, they all have games to play. And it's going to be, and they're the big leagues. And again, as I mentioned on this podcast a few times now, it comes down to money. And it's about ensuring that for when next, basically, did they pay, play the games in some way this season and make decisions this season that don't then affect next season? So I know for all the talk of you know, people saying for that very reason that we should avoid this season, it's not going to happen for uh, the basis that they need to know who's going to be where next season. So you can't just scrap this season. And I think Liverpool would far sooner win the league, as in the quotes they say. They, you know, the, the UEFA president says, you know, if it's they have to win the league in an office or in an empty stadium, you can't envisage a way where they're not going to win it. I mean, that's not ideal for fans who've, you know, some of them have been every single one of those twenty nine games. But it's far better than having those twenty nine games than it being for nothing. No, and I suppose the uh, the message from actually the people that matter, the FIFA president, the UEFA president, Premier League stakeholders, isn't changing. It's constantly, we want to see the season finish. It's then you get the, the Karen Brady's, the Richard Keys, and these sort of people start saying, oh, the season should be null and void. But I suppose it's the reality of the situation we're actually in, that we're only now on the 6th of April, and yet we've been in this position, it feels like months and months, We've only been in it a few weeks and yet it will be months until football comes back. So these people just come out with sound bites to fill the time, basically, as, as Gorsty alluded to before. Yeah, you've got to honour the integrity of the competitions. But I think it's Doily said with how many questions is Klopp going to be asked when that first press conference comes around? And think how much we normally get out of Jurgen Klopp in a press conference. That's the same for all these managers across the country. And you've got all this space to fill. So if someone asks a question, they're going to give an answer. 
and the papers are going to fill it with the controversial lines. So that's why we're hearing from like Richard Keyes, Karen Brady saying stuff like this that is going to get the reaction. It's amazing how many um, Manchester United players or ex-Manchester United players are coming out and saying they want it null and void. You're hearing those opinions, not you're really hearing from players that say, yeah, let's just finish the season. It's always the ones that have got the bit of controversy because it's what we're not really expecting to happen because of what we're hearing from FIFA, what we're hearing from UEFA. When you've got the competitions, football's been going on for, what, 150 years and regionised leagues and all this. It's all proper. We've always had our proper champions each year. You can't just decide to cancel it one year because then where does it stand next time there's something like this granted it might not happen forever long with it being different each time um so like belgium they've gone and said these are our champions but you can't say belgium right club Bruges have won the league they're in the champions league next year but premier league null and void it we're cancelling it all we're just going to start again next year so Liverpool miss out on the premier league sheffield united miss out on europe leicester miss out on the champions league just can't be done that's a great point actually i think belgium have basically just set the tone haven't they because they've said, right, we're just going to finish the season and award everything. I think now nobody can void. Nobody can void it. No, because as you say, that precedent has has been set. I just wonder, some Premier League clubs have sort of done a few conference things or their club internal things and, and then have put things out. I do just wonder if we will hear at all from Jurgen Klopp or anyone from Liverpool, obviously not on the situation we spoke about before, but just generally, because we've, we've already sort of said here, although there's no football, there's so many questions you would like to hear Jurgen Klopp respond to, Gorsty. Yeah, well, they've sp- spoken to him twice, haven't they, since, since the Premier League was suspended on the 13th of March. So obviously, Jurgen uh, Klopp did the, the, the open letter, if you like, the public address, which was very well received, um, some really great messages in there. And then the club website had the interview with him a week a week ago last Friday, so maybe it'll be a a, um, a fortnightly thing, and we'll hear from him again on on Friday. But um, we, we haven't heard anything around that as yet. But um, there's no doubt we we would like to hear a little bit more from from one or two players, and it's just to just to keep us uh, keep us occupied and give us something to do. To be honest, but um, I know Virgil Van Dijk's come out and, and said some things today, hasn't he? I'm sure we're going to come on to him in a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean we are struggling without uh, players. Tell us what do you think and feel. Yeah, we're getting to see a lot of them do silly things at home. We got a, a, a video, we saw the video of Adam Lalana doing the crossbar challenge with his lad and his lad falling over. That was quite funny. But anyway, we'll move on to uh, something more celebratory. And Harvey Elliott on Saturday celebrated his 17th birthday. So we're going to now just talk a bit about young Liverpool players who have broken through, some who have hit dizzy heights and some who perhaps fell by the wayside. Because there's no doubting that Harvey Elliott, when he arrived from Fulham during the summer came well we still don't certainly know the details of the the pay packet that Liverpool had to to pay out for him but certainly that he came with a lot of hype and a lot of expectation Curtis Jones is also breaking through at the moment and Doyley this is a player who Liverpool fans I know you've obviously seen a fair bit of the under 23s Liverpool have an awful lot to be excited about with Harvey Elliott yeah, I think he's. I think he's great. To be honest, I mean, I've, as you say, I've seen him quite a lot for the under twenty threes. I've seen him play for the under twenty ones in the EFL Trophy. I've seen him like with Gorst. We've seen him play in the uh, UEFA Youth League as well, uh, various parts of Europe. We've seen him play for the first team. Interesting, he's not played for the under eighteens because they immediately just went. You know, he's 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 too good for that. Let's get him straight into the under twenty threes. Even though, as you say, he was only seventeen on Saturday. I just think with him, it's whatever he wants to be. It, he plays with such maturity on the pitch. And the one thing I picked up straight away was, and it's something that the best players have, 
is that he takes care when he's got the ball. He plays the pass to people, even if it's two yards or 20 or 40. He plays the pass that needs to be played. And he, put, he puts them in the position where the, the player receiving the ball just doesn't really have to do very much other than he always makes his, the mind up for them, if you see what I mean. He's, he's, he's playing with one or two steps ahead. And when he first started, the, he didn't quite get as maybe as many goals or assists as you might want for somebody's position with his reputation. But now he's doing it. Now he's doing it. And you've seen him when he's played in the first team, certainly playing against Everton in the uh, in the FA Cup game. You've got absolutely no fear. You know, Luca Dean had a bit of a, a rough time up against him. So... I think he's somebody that Liverpool, you know, there's a reason why they went in for him. There's a reason why he was put straight into the team in a friendly against Napoli up in up in Edinburgh in I think late July or early August. He was straight in there. From that moment on, he's just been somebody that Liverpool fans have quite rightly got excited about because he's a very special talent. But as you, you know, as, as we've all got to bear in mind, he's still only just 17. And not just for him, but for a lot of the youngsters, this is another thing that's not been really written about. They'll all be like... They'll be desperate to play. This has come at completely the wrong time for them because they'll have been, you know, certainly for Liverpool, there'll have been a lot of youngsters who might think, well, the league will be in the bag of the last five or six games. We might get a chance of playing in the first team. And now we don't know how it's going to pan out. So interesting. But yeah, Harvey Elliott's definitely a player who I think we'll be hearing an awful lot about over the next few years. Yeah, and he's a player, Gorsty, who made his professional debut aged 15. And something sort of on on what Doyley said, having watched him and seen him, he has that pass appreciation and the weighting of the pass he certainly has, but he also has that bit of arrogance that I don't think you can teach to young players. And having made his debut at 15 at Millwall of all places in effectively, yes, a London derby for, for Fulham in a, a League Cup game, he doesn't get overawed very easily. No, you're right uh, about the arrogance. It was a point I was going to make myself a little... A little bit of arrogance can can be a good thing in, in football, can't it? We've seen some of some of the greatest players ever have always had that little little side to them, and that was something that I'd, I'd written as well, guy. When you mentioned it about him making his Fulham debut at Millwall, um, you know, for any player to go to Millwall is an intimidating environment. So for a 15 year old boy, is speaks volumes of his character. The fact that he was able to go in there and and play, and um, you know, he is the youngest player in the Premier League history. Um, he's still got a lot of lot of maturing to do um, as a as a man. He's, he's still very slight, and he, he doesn't look like someone who's going to have a huge growth spurt overnight and, and bulk out and, and take away some of his his gifts that he's got now because he, he just doesn't look like that type of person. But I think still think there's obviously plenty of room to to grow as a man and, and improve as a player. And I think he's still got at least you know two or three years minimum before. Anyone is asking him to be knocking on the on the first team door. So it's great that he's getting all this experience now. Um, he's only, obviously only just turned seventeen. He's already made his first team debut in, in a game club team. So um, he can be whatever he wants to be, and it's going to be so exciting to watch him over the next five or six years. Yeah, and I suppose even though he's only turned 17, Theo, and he, he might have a couple of years before you'd probably be expecting him to knock on the door. Given what we've seen from him, the character he's got, he's probably hoping to knock on the door sooner rather than later. Yeah, definitely. You think if Liverpool, when Premier League resumes, win the league within a couple of games, he's going to be disappointed if he's not getting a couple of games in before the end of the season. Like, granted, Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane, they're not going to want to give up their spot because they're going to have their eyes fully on the golden boot. But when you've got the players that have got that arrogance, that confidence, they don't care about the players in front of them, the names, the celebrity status. They want those opportunities. And it's probably the biggest compliment you can give Harvey Elliott. You think all the great youngsters that have come through from Liverpool in the Premier League era, 
they've not looked like kids when they've come through. I'm thinking like Robbie Fowler, Michael Owen, Stephen Gerrard. They've had such confidence that they've been able to make that impact straight away. And this season, we've seen a lot of kids given opportunities in the Liverpool team because of them going off for the FIFA Club World Cup for the Shrewsbury replay. And as you'd expect, um, they've played like kids. Some of them, the young players, they obviously need game time, they need experience. But in the Villa game especially, Harvey Elliott, he, he looked a player. You wouldn't have thought he was as young as he was. He was on the ball and he was such a threat. And you can put him in the first team and you don't think he's lost or anything. He fits in there. Granted, he's not been on the ball as much as he'd like to be sometimes, but that just comes with experience. He's definitely got something about him. And when we're saying he's 17 now, football isn't as a case of players break through when they get 200 games now before they're 21. You get the odd player now, but he could easily be part of this first team for the next 20 years easily. It's crazy to think how good he is. Yeah, he's mad when you say that, actually. You do the maths, yeah, he, he quite conceivably could. Doily, of course, now the way in social media is and YouTube is and the videos we see of players and how brilliant they are with highlight reels straight away, even from a young age. We don't perhaps have that excitement level of hearing the whispers of a, a young player come through as perhaps it was in the 80s, 90s. Liverpool have, though, obviously got a rich tradition of producing talent. I just wondered, sort of in terms of excitement levels, the likes of Nico Williams, Curtis Jones, Harvey Elliott, last time there was this sort of buzz around young players really sort of breaking through with the Reds. Well, Owen and Carragher came through at the same time with Gerard. Not Owen, yeah, yeah, Owen and Carragher and then Gerard shortly afterwards. So there was three. And there was also other ones like the likes of Dominic Matteo was knocking around then and David Thompson. He went on to have maybe not a Liverpool, but certainly had good professional careers. So there was a lot of players coming through at that time. Um, I think talking about the likes of Curtis Jones and Nico Williams, it's different because Harvey Elliott, obviously, let's be perfectly honest, not much of, not many of us had really heard of him before he signed for Liverpool, Liverpool were linked. It's different for the others because those of us who watch the under-23s and the uh, and the youth league games will have known about Nico Williams for a couple of years, certainly Curtis Jones for a couple of years as well. Curtis Jones was when he was on the uh, the tour, was it nearly two years ago now in, in America, where Klopp took him. But that's the thing about Jurgen Klopp, he loves to give these youngsters a chance. I mean, I know for a fact that he, he absolutely loved Nico Williams at the start of this season when he saw him play for the under-23s and, and, and the, the under-19s. And he was, you know, behind the scenes, he'd been impressed when he moved up to the first team training. Same with um, same with Harvey Elliott. I think it was Pep Linder said when he started training with the first team, he said, we couldn't believe how good he was. He's even better than we expected. So, you know, the Liverpool are getting rewards for giving these players the chance. I mean, not all of them, not all of the players will come through. That's just the way it is. <laughs> Liverpool are the Europe, well, still the European champions. They're the world champions. The 25 points clear at the top of the Premier League. These are pl- players who are going to come in and make it at this level have to be very, very good. So the fact that Jones, Elliott, uh, Williams have impressed Klopp on his training staff, that kind of shows you how good they are and, more importantly, how good they could end up being because we've seen with Trent Alexander-Arnold, there's a player who, for the very first time you saw him, went, he's a player. And that's the same for these three. So Liverpool are quite happy to give them the opportunity. And it's kind of funny, isn't it, that Trent's depth, he could end up being Nico Williams over the next couple of years. So to have two local players well, sorry, homegrown players, battling it out for the same position. That shows you that Liverpool have been getting things right in the transfer market, but it shouldn't be overlooked that over the last three, four, five years that they've been getting things pretty right at the academy too. Yeah, and I suppose even part of that, Gorst, he's been 
academy recruitment as well because we're talking about Harvey Elliott, obviously a player brought in in the summer. Rian Brewster's still obviously finding his way and making his way through a man who hasn't had all of his development whilst being at Liverpool. And it just shows the different ways in which Liverpool under FSG, under Michael Edwards, look to develop even the youngest of talent. Yeah, well, that that that, that recruitment side, side of things never stops, does it? You know, you can have as settled a first team squad as you like, and Liverpool have got a, a completely settled squad, haven't they? You know, 23-man squad now, but you know, you know, clubs are always looking for, for the next big thing. So that, that you know, that youth r- recruitment drive is something that never really ends. And, and Liverpool obviously brought in Seth Vandenberg in the summer from PEC's wall after he'd made around about a dozen first team appearances in, in the Dutch first division. Um, Harvey Elliott was someone who, who they've kept tabs on. So it, it's, a, it's a recruitment drive that never ends. So um, I think it will be, continue this summer. Um, who that will be at the moment, we're, we're not too sure. But you can, um, you can kind of look at it now and think, if Liverpool are bringing in a teenager and he must have something about him and Liverpool must be uh, serious that he can have a, a, a top-level career with the Reds. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see who's next, really. There was Joe Hardy as well in January, wasn't there, who, who come in? From uh, from Brentford and, and he seemed to score a half full for, for their B team. So um, yeah, it's it's a it's a strategy that never really seems to end. It seems a lot more stable now. Like you think to when Liverpool had the first great youngsters coming through in the nineties, when you think McManaman and Fowler, Owen, and all that the whole way through the nineties. Fans really, I suppose, unless they were local, only knew about these players in the program. When you were seeing those little match reports, like, oh, Michael Owen scored again, Robbie Fowler scored again, you got the whispers there. And then as we've progressed, you've had, say, um, FA Cup, Youth Cup games, you can watch them on TV, or the club channels come in, and now you can watch every under-18s game, every 23s game, no matter where you were. And you've got all this hope and expectation because you're seeing them every week. But after Liverpool had that initial flurry in the 90s, they did have to wait a while for another good one to come through. And there was always that hope and expectation about the next generation of players. So I'm thinking back to, say, uh, Tom Ince's era, Laurie Dallavalli, Danny Pacheco, those sorts of players. And you see glimpses of them in the Youth Cup thinking, oh, they look all right here at under-18s level. Why don't they get an opportunity? Why is Rafa Benitez not giving them an opportunity? And ultimately, it's because they weren't good enough. And now you're not having that noise from fans because you trust the manager, you trust the coaches. They will get the opportunity when they're ready. You're seeing more of them in whatever level and they look players. Then they get the first team opportunities and they still look players. And it's just a lot more relaxed and Liverpool are definitely getting the rewards from it. Yeah, no, no, I suppose it, that ties into what Doyley said before about how not all players will break through, not all players have a, a great time, even those, Gorsley, I know you wrote a piece about Mark Kennedy last week, even those who are signed and signed for relatively big money. Yeah, it, it's something that only seems to happen now with the absolute best talent in, in the world, thankfully. But 25 years ago, a couple of weeks ago, Liverpool signed Mark Kennedy from, um, was, it, was it Wimbledon, Doyley? Uh, is it Wimbledon or Millwall? It was one of those two. I think it was Millwall, wasn't it? Millwall it was, and then he went to Wimbledon, yeah. Uh, so Liverpool paid around about £2 million for an 18-year-old that made him the most expensive teenager in British football at the time and didn't quite work out for him, despite obviously he went on to have a very good career with the likes of Wimbledon and Manchester City and Wolves. But um, that would have been a big ask for it. Can you imagine Liverpool making a teenager the most expensive teenager in British football? The amount of... Uh, excitement and, and pressure that would already be on such a young shoulders at, at that stage would be incredible, really. So, thankfully, it's it's something you don't see happen too often now. You can already think of the likes of maybe Killian and Mbappe, you know those types of players who, who were breaking records as teenagers. Um, 
but yeah, that was one that didn't work out. Sometimes it does, and, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but Mark Kennedy was, was unfortunately one that didn't work out for Liverpool. No, certainly. But we'll finish things off then here on the Blubber podcast by talking about a man who Liverpool paid an awful lot of money for, and it certainly has paid off. That being Virgil van Dijk, who's been speaking during this break in football and talking about the legacy, I suppose, he wants to leave at Liverpool. And Doyle says he wants to go down and be remembered as a Liverpool legend. He's probably a long way on the path to having already secured that status, isn't he? Yeah, I was going to say he's already done it. Well, if they, if they, if they win the league, then that's it. Done. Tick, tick the two boxes, won the European Cup, won the league. And so uh, he's also quite good at football, which helps. And um, and he also stops in the mix zone all the time, which I'm sure goes to you. That's good news for us journalists. Yeah. So he's always happy. <laughs> he's always happy. No matter what the score is, you can always get a few words out of him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the reality is most of these players now are, are already legends because they won the Champions League. And it's only happened six times in the in, in Liverpool's history, and four of them were all reasonably close together. So even the two thousand and five team, you know, okay, not legends in the sense of being absolutely amazing at football, but legendary names in Liverpool's history. Even like Jimmy Traore played in two thousand and five. Everybody knows who he is. It's not just about his own goal against Burnley now. It's about the fact that he played in that two thousand and five final. Jerzy Dudek. He's not Liverpool's best ever goalkeeper. In the history, but he probably made one of the best ever saves. And I think with Van Dyke, I know what you're getting at. Van Dyke, he's somebody who he's so much head and shoulders above every other defender, not just in the Premier League, but in the world. And he backs it up with consistency. He makes the players around him look better. And he, he's now winning, you know, he's won three trophies already. You know, if you count the Super Cup and the uh, and the Club World Cup, and they're going to win the Premier League uh, at some point, somehow. So if he sticks around for another couple of years, he could conceivably win a few more trophies. So, yeah, he's he's probably already a legend, but he could become a, a legendary legend. And he's the kind of guy, though, who last season there was obviously so much talk and he did win the, the FIFA Men's Best Player Award, whatever, whatever that award does certainly mean. But he's the kind of guy, Gorsty, who his consistency has continued to such a level now that you completely expect it of him. And actually that talk of individual accolades kind of goes because you get used to actually how brilliant he was when defenders before him weren't, weren't that good. Yeah. I've, I've never seen a defender like him at Liverpool. And, and I used to love Sammy Hippier. I thought Jamie Carragher was, was fantastic for a good, a good few years, but Van Dijk is, is a cut above them all. And um, for years there, there was this debate over the likes of Mamadou Sacco and people some people thought he was great, some people thought he wasn't. And it was only really when, when Van Dijk showed up that you thought this is what a good defender really looks like and this is how they should play. He's just unbelievable talent. And for him to finish second in the Ballon d'Or just shows you how good he was last season. Um, you know, the, the only person who was who was deemed to be better than him was Lionel Messi, who won it for six times. And then you consider him to be the, the best ever. So it's um, it, it's it's unbelievable the levels he, he's reached since moving to Liverpool. 75 million, some people thought was was a, was too much to pay for him, but Liverpool didn't. Um, I don't know if there was too many thought he'd massively overpaid for him. I think everyone knew, you know, the, the kind of ballpark figure that he was worth. But now he's he's undisputedly the best defender in the world, and uh, it was unfortunate not to be claimed, not to be awarded the, the world's best player award only three months ago. Um, unbelievable player, um, Liverpool have, have basically been transformed since he signed two and a half years ago. 
And even if he sticks around another, say, five years, Theo, that £75 million that was outlaid on him, all of a sudden, stretched over seven and a half years of service to Liverpool Football Club, will look somewhat of a, a steal of sort of, well, it, it would work out at a cheap rate per season for having him. He's already made it look like a steal, if we're being honest. The fact that Liverpool have always had this aim to win the Premier League and he's now within touching distance of it, having transformed that entire defence, having won the Champions League, nearly winning the Ballon d'Or. And you look at him and you realise he is that good. Liverpool haven't been scared of spending big money before, but the difference in recent years is when they spend the big money, it tends to be on the players that will make that difference. It's not a gamble when they've spent it on Alisson or Van Dijk compared to when they spent £35 million on Andy Carroll, for example. Um, they are the best goalkeeper and the best defender on the planet. Liverpool spent the money on them and they've more than got what they paid for. Yeah, no, certainly. And that seems a good place to round things off then. Theo, we'll let you escape to go and find yourself a razor so you can have a shave. Doily, you can finish <laughs> off your cornflakes. And Gorsty, I'm sure by Friday, you'll still be sat in the same place in your kitchen, mate. <laughs> Probably. Well, great stuff. Thanks a lot for, for joining us, guys. And thanks a lot to you guys for listening in. Wherever you get your audio on demand or if you join us through the YouTube channel, as always, it is very much appreciated. Until next time, though, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.